0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sina Yanolu. I studied neuroscience and bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH3 in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Dr. Martin Abramson and Dr. Sandeep Chopra to talk about their self-published book, co Your Diabetes, Prevention, Control and Remission. The global epidemic of diabetes and pre-diabetes afflicts more than 1 billion people. And sadly, more than 50% of people with the disease do not achieve the desired glucose control. In Concur Your Diabetes, Prevention, Control, Remission, doctors Martin Abramson and Sanjay Chopra, two Harvard Medical School professors and master clinicians, provide a roadmap for people with diabetes to manage their condition and live rewarding and fulfilling lives. Martin Abramson... MD FACP is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and previous chief medical officer at Joslin Diabetes Center. He lectures globally on diabetes and has spearheaded educational initiatives on diabetes for physicians around the world. Sanjeev Chopra MD MACP FRCP is a professor of medicine and served as the faculty dean for continuing education at Harvard Medical School for 12 years. The author or co-author of 12 previous books including Brotherhood, Dharma Destiny and The American Dream. Which he co-authored with his brother Deepak. He is the recipient of many prestigious teaching awards and a sought-after speaker lecturing internationally. Together, Drs. Abramson and Chopra direct the Division of Continuing Medical Education at Boston's Best, Boston Best Israel Deaconess Medical Center, a major teaching affiliate of Harvard Medical School, and have been conducting CME meetings for more than a quarter of a century. Thank you, Drs. Abramson and Dr. Chopra. Thank you for joining me today. It was so nice to have you with us. Thank
2: so you they, for inviting great, us. Great, great to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, first off, what was your motivation in writing this book? I know this is asked a lot. There are so many books about diabetes. There are so many opinions out there, blog posts and everything. What did you want to convey to diabetes patients with with this book?
0: Um, okay, I'll I'll start and Sanjeev will continue. Um There are a lot of books about diabetes, but I think our book is unique. It brings in a very personal perspective. It brings in stories about people. Uh, It talks about the latest developments in all aspects of diabetes, our understanding of diabetes, how it's managed, the newer treatments, the newer insulins, the newer technologies to manage diabetes. It covers two of Sanji's favorite topics, the microbiome and coffee, and the role that they play in uh, diabetes, and in fact, in other diseases. And we'll cover more of that as we conduct this interview. But I think most importantly, I think the, the goal of providing this book to the reader is to give people with or at risk for diabetes hope, and an understanding that they can control their diabetes, that diabetes does not define who they are that they define how well they can look after their diabetes. And by bringing in stories of our patients, we give examples um, of people who have really inspired us to continue to take care of people with diabetes. And I'll let Sanjeev continue. So Martin's
2: pretty much said it all, but it brings to mind a quote by Voltaire, the French philosopher, who once said, every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. So Martin and I conceived writing this at the early start of COVID lockdown. And we said, you know, between us, we have almost a century of experience since we graduated from medical school. We conduct a Harvard CME course called Update in Internal Medicine. And it's attended by up to 800 clinicians from 25, 30 countries. We also conduct a course every year on diabetes and its complications. And again, that's attended by about people from 25 countries. We also teach in Santa Fe, in Singapore, Kuwait. And many of those courses include half a day on diabetes and its complications. So it's a very important topic, like you mentioned. Up to a billion people have diabetes or prediabetes. We thought this was really a duty, we should do it. There's so many advances. The mantra we used for our CME courses, which we share with all our faculty, is that we're going to inform, we're going to inspire. And the third eye is people will learn how to integrate this newfound information and knowledge into their lives. And as Martin mentioned, we have so many stories in there we actually did some research and came across a gentleman by the name of Wilbur Cross, who 20 years ago, without continuous glucose monitoring, having to take multiple injections of insulin for type one diabetes, climbed Mount Everest. And then he scaled all the highest peaks in all the continents. And then he went on a trip to the North and South Pole. And it reminded us of a quote by Sir Edmund Hillary The first person to climb Mount Everest with the Sherpa Tenzing Norge. And he was asked, what was the crowning achievement of your life? Being the first person to climb Mount Everest? He said, no, no, no. All I did was leave a footprint on a mountain. He said, it is not the mountain that we conquer, but ourselves. So people with diabetes, like Martin said, should not let that disease define who they are. They can achieve many things. They can scale great heights. They can conquer it. They can even go into remission, as we talk about with certain diets, including intermittent fasting, weight loss, bariatric surgery, an amazing procedure. It's sort of sad commentary that so many of our fellow citizens need bariatric surgery. But when it's indicated and done, two years later, the cost savings from all the medications they've come off of much lower doses pays for the bariatric surgery. And it's one surgical procedure that's been shown to
0: increase longevity. So pretty remarkable. Yeah, you know, I, I think the other the other aspect about the book is that this is not just about type one or about type two diabetes. It's comprehensive in that it covers all all types of diabetes, including diabetes during pregnancy, which we can talk about. Um And there are many other books that talk about this particular diet or that particular diet and this is what you should do and it's focused more for people with type 2 diabetes um, and it gives people sort of only one sort of type of diet that they can that they should follow and that's going to you know reverse their diabetes or cause their diabetes to go into remission and we felt that those books are a little narrow in their perspectives Uh, In our perspective, we felt that we needed to be broader. We needed to include um, information for people with type 1 diabetes. We needed to include the the various options regarding diets for people with type 2 diabetes, diets that have had some success, diets that have claimed some success but not necessarily have had too much scientific evidence to support them. Um, uh, and, And at the end of the day, the message to people is that you don't have to embark upon massive weight loss and you don't have to go on a starvation diet to achieve success. You can achieve an an amazing amount of improvement in your health with small bits of weight loss, with a steadfast approach to changing your lifestyle and doing things that work for you as the individual rather than following a prescribed program that somebody else writes down for you. And so that, that, together with the stories of the people that have inspired us, um, we think is, was our duty, as Sanjeev says, to bring to the public. It, it also marked
2: the 100th anniversary of the first injection of insulin in a young boy in Toronto, Leonard Thompson. And so it was timely in that manner. Martin had a patient for many, many years And I'm going to let him tell the story about her. But she lived to 92 years, had one of the most inspiring, full, rewarding lives. And Martin calculated that she received 120,000 injections of insulin. We had her as a guest speaker at our annual update in internal medicine course under the aegis of Harvard Medical School. And Martin interviewed her on stage and she got a standing ovation. So, Martin, tell a little bit more about that amazing lady.
0: Yeah, so um, I'm going to start off by giving you another quote that we put in the book. And that is uh, a Winston Churchill quote. He said, Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. And I think that defines a lot about this person who in 1937 was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Now, that's 15 years or so after insulin was given to people, insulin was impure then. Uh, the, there was no blood glucose monitoring. There was no disposable pens or in, or, or small needles or injections that uh, were disposable with, t- with shiny 31-gauge needles. This poor person had to have uh, probably a, a 1.5 to 2-inch long needle Um, with a bore of about 20 gauge, which is, you know, almost three times the size of what we would use today. And her mother used to uh, massage her buttocks with this wax or cocoa butter and then inject her. And then she had to sterilize the needles on a stove. Then she talked about how she had to measure the urine glucose with um, a reagent that she had to put in her urine in a test tube on the stove. And then she evolved, and, and her story evolved. She embraced every single advance short of an insulin pump that was made available to people with diabetes. She lived for 82 years with type 1 diabetes. She represented the United States in a curling team, as, a, as she. so she actively exercised. She married a man who whose job took him to all parts of the world, and she traveled with him everywhere. She was told she would never have children. She had three beautiful children. Um, in fact, she named one of them Joslyn after Elliot Joslyn, whose famous uh, diabetes center we know all about. And... Um, she developed another complication that occurs commonly in people with diabetes—that's celiac disease, type one diabetes. More in type one diabetes, and she dis- described how she flummoxed doctors for for ages about uh, with all her symptoms, a myriad of symptoms. Nobody could figure it out. Today we know more about celiac disease and its association with type one diabetes. She developed osteoporosis and how that was treated. She, she had uh, retinopathy, and that was treated, and her, she never lost vision. She, she then ultimately got, had cardiovascular disease and went through various procedures, but nothing kept her back from living a normal life. Um, and as Sanjeev says, her story that she recounted was, uh, was received with a standing ovation. Uh, she also gave the story, I will also say, that at, at the American Diabetes Association, a few years before that at a, in, an, in an auditorium with thousands of people, and once again got this amazing ovation uh, for, for the way in which she recounted her life. But every time I would see this person, there was a smile on her face. There was never anything bad or wrong. She would never s- complain about her sort of what she'd be her, her sentence, what she'd had to deal with. It was always about what can I do to improve my glucose control? How can I use continuous glucose monitoring devices? Uh, at the age of 85, she was using a continuous glucose monitoring amazing. device. <laughs> amazing
1: amazing. amazing. I mean, so, that's actually, so you already touched upon a few points that I would like to follow up on. So um, one thing is that you've mentioned quite a lot of um, lifestyle changes and you have actually separate chapters uh, in the book for these topics. Can we maybe go through, so I actually see this, from this perspective, you also mentioned a lot diabetes is in some way a very uh, personal disease because everybody has a different kind of genetic makeup, different sort of metabolism, and this results actually something that works for one might not work for the other and therefore requires this more, let's say, like how we do, let's say, in the um, uh, healthcare industry also going more personalized way. And they have to experiment, they have to be also a little bit scientists to see what works for them and whatnot. Maybe we can talk a bit about what are the different uh, parameters they could work with, they could try out. What are these several lifestyle changes they could try and see what works for them? So I'll take a
2: stab at it first. Um, What comes to mind is a very dear friend of mine, who Martin also knows, and he has type 2 diabetes and he has continuous glucose monitoring. And he has discovered that if he goes up and down a flight of stairs three times, it has a more pronounced decrease in his blood sugar than if he is 30 minutes on a treadmill. He's discovered that whole wheat and regular bread makes no difference. He knows exactly what, what will happen to his blood sugar excursion with everything he eats. And his hemoglobin A1c is 5.9. This guy is thriving. Nothing stops him. He's philanthropic, travels all over the world. You know, there's a saying, feedback is the breakfast of champions. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. He's a living example of that. So different things work for people differently. And I think it has to do with your physiology, your metabolism, but also the gut microbiome which we now call the second human genome, the inner bacterial forest, newly discovered organ, 100 trillion bacteria in our gut. And it has implications in so many medical conditions, obesity, diabetes, arthritis, cirrhosis, Parkinsonism, autism, on and on. It's one of the hottest topics in medicine. And we can change the gut microbiome with certain things we do. For example, if you drink coffee, you get much healthier gut bacteria. If you eat fermented foods like kimchi, if you exercise, if you meditate, they all change the gut microbiome. And then radically, which sounds very unsavory, but fecal microbiota transplant is coming to the forefront in treating a lot of conditions, not only Clostridia difficile colitis, which can be refractory, and can lead to toxic megacolon and multiple complications, a healthy stool transplant, and they get better. There's now a study that patients with alcohol use disorder. We don't use the term alcoholism anymore. Alcohol use disorder, given a healthy stool, they lose their craving for alcohol. There's a study that patients with malignant melanoma, which can be a deadly skin cancer, who didn't respond to checkpoint inhibitor therapy, were then given the stool of a patient who had responded and six out of the 15, again, small studies, converted into responders. So we mentioned some of these other topics in the book as well. Um, In writing the book, we learned a lot and we were really inspired by these patients. And I want Martin to tell the story of the pilot. Uh, that's an amazing story uh, because yeah. you
0: could really soar high. Yeah, so so I'll tell you his story. But we, you mentioned to go back to your question about lifestyle and individual individuality. This is one of the reasons why we we included so much about diet in our book because there isn't a single diet that works for everybody. And as Sanjeev says, certain foods have different effects on in different effects in different people. But there's a, some basic fundamental things that people, we, we want people to go to, to take home. One is processed carbohydrates generally are not good for you. The less processed, the better it is. As a friend of mine once said, if you don't recognize where that food comes from, don't eat it, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is quite clever. But yeah. I don't know if we can do that all the time. But, you know, avoid, avoid processed carbohydrates, have healthy fats. We just reviewed a paper now that came out a few weeks ago uh, uh, in, a, in a study of over 100,000 people looking at uh, what was the nurse's health study and the physician's health study. They found that people who had avocado two or more times a week had lower cardiovascular mortality. So instead of having yogurt, butter, cheese, etc., if you have avocado instead. Twice a week. Twice a week. You lower your mortality significantly, cardiovascular uh, disease and mortality. Um, avoid avoid um, uh, saturated fats, if you can, as much as possible. Uh, chicken and fish is better than, say, red meat frequently. So... There's the Mediterranean diet, a lot of scientific evidence about the Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet doesn't mean that you have to live in the Mediterranean area to eat it. You can have it anywhere in the world. There's people have tried low-fat diets. People have tried low-carb diets. You do what works for you. And the other point we make is that if you lose a small amount of weight, you can see enormous benefits. Now, the more weight you lose, the more likely you are that your diabetes will go into remission. And that's one of the reasons why bariatric surgery has been so successful because that accounts for, that can be associated with more weight loss than medical means. Having said that, there are newer drugs now that people didn't have 10, 15 years ago that not only lower your glucose, but allow you to lose weight at the same time. And some of these newer drugs or modifications of these drugs have been shown to be associated with as much as 15% Body weight loss in some people, maybe even 20% in some people, not in everybody, but in some. So you've got to try these new medications and see if they work for you, if it's appropriate for you.
2: You know, a question we're asked is, what is the best diet? And I think both of us answer it, the diet you can adhere to. You got to stick to it. If you don't stick to it, it might work for a week or two weeks, then it's no good, and you've gained the weight back. The other thing that I think is very important for the listeners to appreciate is that we should not use artificial sweeteners. If you're going to have a soda, you might as well have a regular Coke or ginger ale, have a little bit, but not a diet Coke, not a tab. Three times the risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke in people who consume diet soda on a regular basis. It changes the gut microbiome. The excursion and the blood sugar is higher with a diet soda than with a regular soda. So there's very practical things that we offer. We have a checklist. We have a whole small section chapter on vaccinations um, and then all the technological advances. The the
0: the, the story... Um that Sanjeev mentioned that I should tell you about is about a patient of mine who's a pilot. Now, uh, when I first started seeing him, he, he he has type 2 diabetes. We thought he might get by with uh, non-insulin medications. And it turned out that uh, they weren't working. He was in a relatively unusual form of type 2 diabetes because he's not overweight. A small percentage of people with type 2 diabetes are not overweight, And so eventually he needed insulin. And he knew that as a pilot, he's a commercial pilot employed by one of the big commercial airlines here, that was going to be the kiss of death for his uh, career. He couldn't fly commercially. Um, But he said, my health is more important. So he transitioned to insulin. Uh, But he started with a bunch of other pilots, started working towards lobbying the FAA in the United States to allow pilots, people on insulin to fly. And uh, you probably are aware of this, but in Canada and the United Kingdom and certain parts of Europe, the regulatory authorities began to allow pilots to fly who were taking insulin, provided they fulfill certain criteria. And the American uh, FAA was a little behind, should we say in that. Um, I got involved in going to a meeting to try and lobby them uh, through the American Diabetes Association um, and they kept uh, applying to the FAA to get permission to fly. And ultimately, to cut a long story short, with the advent of continuous glucose monitoring, which is then enables you to calculate what percentage of your glucoses go above a certain range, below a certain range, the FAA set down certain guidelines and regulations by which they would allow pilots to fly if they fulfilled these certain criteria with regard to their glucose levels. And which he did, he complied with everything. Two days before his license was about to expire, now he'd been working for the, for the airline in defense, he'd been working for the airline on the ground, training other pilots, so he didn't lose his job, but he couldn't fly. And his dream is always, as Sanjib says, to fly. Two days before his license was due to expire, he got the approval that he could fly again. And he took off. He was the second pilot in the United States to... On insulin. To, on insulin to be allowed by the FAA to fly. But he persevered. It's a, it's, it's a lesson in perseverance. But his health came first. He made his health come first. So we used to say to people who were diagnosed with diabetes, especially type 1 diabetes, who need insulin for survival, um, you know, there's two things that you can't really do. One is mountain climbing. The other one is flying an aeroplane. Um, and the third one I said, sometimes be careful when you go scuba diving. Well, all of those three things are allowed, uh, happen now. So we know about the mountain climber. And I just read recently that another young person of type 1 diabetes just climbed Mount Everest. We know about the flying, so the flying is not an issue. Scuba diving is is not a problem because people can, you know, know what their sugars are, can check their sugars all the time. So there really isn't anything that somebody with diabetes cannot do if they want to do
1: it. That's great, and I mean, I can also from the stories that you tell and also you share in the book, I can really see it does require from the patients quite a lot of dedication and mental power in some ways and Sanjeev also uh, basically touched upon this like when you guys a diet best diet is one you can adhere to because this let's say compared to a person who is not living with diabetes just creates all those things you have to think of all the rules you have to adhere to so this requires quite a lot of mental power and you also touch upon this mental health so how um, can um, basically the um, family, friends, and physicians of uh, people living with diabetes can support this? Uh, you know, mental load in some sense. I mean, this really requires a very strong person to live, uh, manage the disease, and even do and you know soar to the skies as Sanju says. This is not this is not an easy task,
2: huh? Yeah, you know, at, at the end of the day. Um, All of us are seeking happiness. And Albert Schweitzer once said, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. I write about this. I speak on this topic. And I think the two ingredients of success are, one, you have to be happy. And the underpinnings of that is having a cadre of good friends, ability to forgive, doing things for others. Three Fs. Friends, forgiveness for others. And the fourth one is expressing gratitude. And if you express gratitude, you'll be happy. But happiness is more than the sum total of happy moments. And in order for us to have sustained happiness, we have to find our purpose and live it. Mark Twain once famously said, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. What's your purpose? So I think successful people like the people Martin's talked about, they have, they're happy. They're happy in their career. They're happy with their families, with their friends. And they have, like you said, they have determination. They have grit, which we can define as having passion and perseverance for a long-term articulated goal. It's a wonderful TED Talk by Angela Duckworth based on her research. She's also given, written a book on grit. And whether it's college students or West Point graduates or CEOs, the ones who are most successful with grit, and they're happy. That's just simple, so simple. So if we have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, we can be happy.
0: You can. Now, we do know that, you know, depression and yeah, um, feeling that. burning out is an issue. No question about it. We see this with patients. We have to counsel patients about it but life today for somebody with diabetes is so much easier than it was in years gone by first of all there's newer ways of keeping uh, keeping a tab on your glucose you can wear a continuous glucose monitoring device you can see what your sugar is all the time some people say i don't want to know what my sugar is and i say but if you don't want to know who does want to know (laughs) number one number two um the the medications for type 2 diabetes are easier to administer, uh, less risk of low sugar reactions and so on, So there's, and, and more effective, um, so, and they can cause weight loss. So the medications are better. The insulins are better today than they ever were before, much more physiological. The delivery systems for giving the insulin, it's painless pretty much. The, uh, whether it's an injection with a syringe or a pen device or insulin pumps today are much more advanced than they ever were. There are pumps today that, that um, are uh, embedded with software that enables the blood glucose to feed into the pump and then the pump can adjust the rate of infusion of the insulin Based on the glucose, what we call a hybrid closed loop. And we're getting closer to what we call the autom- the auto the um, the the, or- the automatic pancreas, the completely automated system. We're getting closer to that. Um so this things are so much easier. But Sanjeev touched on it. Friends, support, a loving family, um, and healthcare providers that care for you, but care not just giving you a prescription but actually listen to you and understand you and as a very famous diabetologist who passed away a couple of years ago said and i'll quote him he said i tell my patients regard me as a friend with a special knowledge to help you because that's what he thought he was that's what he regarded himself as and that's 100 percent correct it's not this white coat doctor that I have to go and visit. Yeah. Your doctor is your friend with a special knowledge. And That's great. You know we've, we've become to know, we've come to know people over all the years that we've looked after patients, their pregnancies, their children, it, it's a family you know we, and that helps people. You know Francis Peabody at Harvard once said
2: it is not in the care of the patients, it is in the caring of the patients. And all good clinicians, whether they're dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, do that. Compassion is a verb. In the Talmud, it says, compassion is the highest form of wisdom. So it's beautiful. You know, the Dalai Lama was asked, what's your religion? He said, I have no religion. My religion is kindness. So I, I think the doctors who are kind and connect with patients and their families. You get inspired both ways. And it's absolutely amazing. And, and then, you know, although it's rare, people can go into remission, mm-hmm. intermittent fasting. We talk about three patients, one of whom had been on insulin, all of them had been on insulin, one of them for 25 years. And after doing intermittent fasting, losing weight, no longer requires insulin. We talk about the first patient cured with stem cell research by one of our colleagues, Doug Melton, brilliant, heads the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. So there's always hope. You know, Napoleon was once asked to define a leader. He said, a leader is a dealer in hope. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: that's that's well, so true.
2: We, we, need, we
0: need a lot of those leaders these <laughs> <Yes>. days
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right and yeah. so i mean i really also like the book because in some ways it's um you know a history a very nice history of uh, you know diabetes and the technological and scientific advances that make it more manageable now and also pr- practical tips and you cite quite a lot of um scientific studies and share uh, patient stories as well. I want to also now look a little bit in the future. I mean, we touched upon the gut microbiome, stem cell research. What for you, like after this, you know, um, number of advances we have experienced now, let's say the holy grail that would really, really help patients. What do you see then in the future for science to discover and improve for patients?
2: I think the holy grail would be to... Start teaching children, children in elementary school, middle school, about what's healthy eating, the importance of exercise, the importance of even walking. We now know that people who sit at a computer for seven hours in a row, even if they are medically fit and do aerobic exercises, have increased risk of cardiovascular mortality. And sitting is the new smoking. Mm -hmm. It's that bad. So we have to start educating the young people so they never get to the stage where they're obese and then have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the dominant chronic liver disease in America, afflicting 70 to 100 million Americans. They're three-year-olds with fatty liver, 16-year-olds with scarring, 28 getting a liver transplant, no longer develop diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart disease. Obesity is linked to 20 different cancers. Somebody has cancer and has obesity, they have a worse prognosis. So I think that if we can address that issue, but it will start with awareness, education, implementation. There should be national health programs about this you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it has never been more true. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so what Sanjeev touches upon is the sort of prevention of diabetes in the first place. And we know that type two diabetes is a preventable disease. Uh, sometimes the genetics are overwhelming. We, we can't choose our parents, but we can do a lot about the environmental I- issues that Sanjeev has spoken about. Uh, type 1 diabetes is a different ball game. You can't really, at the moment, you can't prevent it. But where the holy grail is going with type 1 diabetes is first the artificial pancreas, where there will be infusion systems that um, can ad- adjust the insulin so accurately that people hardly have to think about what to do in terms of managing to give insulin because it's going to be done for them. And then, as we said earlier, stem cells, I still think is gonna be a curative treatment for type 1 diabetes. We've got a way to go still, we're in its early stages, but the clinical trials have started. The the other aspect of type 1 diabetes is identifying people at risk and knowing that if somebody's at very high risk for type 1 diabetes, is there gonna be a medication that can block it from occurring? And there's some promise there on the horizon too there's a new drug that's entering phase 3 clinical trials now that's going to alter the immune response because type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease as we know alter the immune response but not in a in a way that actually increases risk for other problems to occur because immune modulating drugs can sometimes cause other immune mediated events which are worse than the diabetes itself so for type one, there's there is still a lot of promise, but to get back to type two, because that's ninety five percent of people with diabetes, we have to start everybody, as Sanjeev says, at a young age, understanding the importance of a healthy lifestyle, the importance of a healthy diet, um, and and then we we do have new drugs that people can take, where if unfortunately they cannot. Um, they cannot re- prevent diabetes and they get diabetes. There's ways that we can reduce their their, their glucose levels in a safe way uh, and in a way that actually reduces risk of other diseases. And then there, of course, there are newer treatments for the complications of diabetes. So, you know, 50, 60 years mm-hmm. ago, if you got complications of diabetes in the eye, you had a high risk of blindness. It was the commonest cause of blindness in the Western world. Well, Revolutionary treatment. Once again, one of them is at the Joslin Diabetes Center um, uh, over 60 years ago. The laser, the laser, um, laser treatment uh, reduced reduced blindness significantly. And now we have newer drugs that can be given to people, uh, injected in the eye, that can are, are sight saving. So we have early identification of uh, these early complications. Pick them up early. Treat them aggressively and you can reduce the risk of these things progressing progressing too
2: i think the other thing that will happen is will be the use of artificial intelligence which i uh, i think a better term is aided or augmented intelligence there now uh, you can look at somebody's retina without dilating the eye not only will it tell if they have diabetic eye disease and how severe it is do they have hypertensive disease it will tell the gender and the age of the person. Eye exam, gender and age. There are trucks going around villages and small towns in India where people line up and get their eyes looked at, and if they have diabetes, then they're referred to a center. So artificial intelligence, I think public health measures, education for young people all this will fall into place.
1: So everything in prevention, in diagnostics, as well as treatment, so there are much uh, yeah. interesting mm-hmm. things things to come.
2: Yeah, things to come. Yeah. And
1: um, then I would like to touch upon a little bit on gestational diabetes. So um, how is it different in type 2 diabetes, and what does the research know about um, gestational diabetes?
0: Well, you know... Um, we define gestational diabetes as really diabetes that develops during pregnancy. And we call pregnancy, I hate to say it, a diabetogenic state, because what happens in pregnancy is the placenta makes hormones for the baby that are clearly needed for the fetal development, but also are what we call uh, anti-insulin hormones. They, these hormones induce a state of what we call insulin resistance because they do cross over not only from the, they don't only go to the, the embryo, but they unfortunately go into the maternal circulation as well. And when they increase insulin resistance, the pancreas has to sort of rev up its production of insulin to overcome this resistance. And for women who develop gestational diabetes, their pancreas just can't quite do it. So their blood sugars tend to rise. And that is an early indicator that maybe that pancreas may not, um, may not, be as efficient as it should be in years to come. So because of that, once the baby's born, of course, all the hormones that cause this insulin resistance go away. But if there's weight gain after pregnancy, or even if there isn't weight gain, but the pancreas is still being strained, there is a risk that that woman can develop diabetes later in life. So we know that women who have gestational diabetes... Have a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes the studies looking at people with gestational diabetes have also shown that there are some women who happen to develop type 1 diabetes when they're pregnant and there's nothing that they can do about that oh wow and that's we can do tests to diagnose that there are special tests that can diagnose type 1 diabetes Um, so that's a small percentage but it does occur We also know that women who develop gestational diabetes, now the studies show that they have a higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease later in life because of this insulin resistant type of state. So women who develop gestational diabetes need to be checked regularly after their baby's born, need to be screened regularly for diabetes, need to make sure that they have good blood pressure control, need to make sure that their cholesterol is normal, need to be active, and need to obviously keep their weight as close to normal as possible. I think the other
2: thing too I'd like to bring up is coffee. Uh So coffee lowers the risk of developing type Uh two diabetes in men and women. And it's true for both regular and decaf coffee. Coffee also lowers the risk of developing seven common cancers, cirrhosis of the liver, And now there are studies that men and women who drink coffee published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine, Lancet, have lower total and cause specific mortality. Coffee is markedly anti-inflammatory. It contains chlorogenic acid, one of the richest antioxidants. We're learning that in obesity, in cancer, in heart disease, inflammation is the enemy. So that's a clue, and Mm -hmm. I think we can uh, work on that. The other thing that we are getting clues from are bariatric surgery. So some patients, very soon after bariatric surgery, before they have lost any weight, diabetes goes into remission. The gut microbiome has changed. It doesn't change if you do what's called gastroplasty or a sleep. It changes with a Roux and Y. What is changing? The gut microbiome. What about hormones like ghrelin and other hormones? So there are many clues out there. need some very bright young people to, and people like you to solve it, right?
1: So um, yeah. actually, just that you touched upon remission. This was um, uh, the question I would like to close with. So maybe for the uh, listeners who might think that diabetes, you know, when you're diagnosed, it's you know finished. You have it for life. What does it mean to have a remission state in diabetes?
0: So, so people with type 2 diabetes can go into remission. Um, not everybody will, the majority won't, but I'd say 5 to 10% of people who lose enough weight can go into remission. More importantly, even if you cannot go into remission, you can control your diabetes. And you can control it, not just control the numbers, but you can control your life in such a way that you can lead a happy, healthy, successful life. And there's nothing that you shouldn't be able to do. And that's a very important message that we give patients. When people walk mm-hmm. into the room and say, well, now I've got diabetes, Does what does this mean? It means that you have to Be a little bit more careful about things. You have to change the way you live your life in in many ways. But uh, there's nothing that you can't accomplish. I think Martin harped on this earlier, and I think it's
2: very important for the listener to hear it again, is that if somebody is 100 pounds overweight and they have all these non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, the so-called metabolic syndrome, you don't have to lose all 100 pounds. And if you lose 5%, 7%, 9% of that excess body weight, marked improvement in many of these parameters. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease afflicts 70 to 100 million Americans. And it can lead to cirrhosis, liver failure, and need for liver transplantation. And we're finding that you lose 7% body weight marked improvement, Mm -hmm. not only in inflammation and fat, but even in scarring in the liver. After bariatric surgery, 60% of patients with significant scarring of the liver and cirrhosis have marked improvement, including reversal of Mm -hmm. early cirrhosis. So that's the message I think that's important. Don't think it's so daunting. Oh my God, I gained 100 pounds. I'll never be healthy because I'll have to lose all of it. No, start on the journey.
1: So, in closing, actually, that's um, what you would like to say to patients is that there are so many ways, there are so many um, scientific advancement opportunities, there's so many things they themselves can just um, take control and uh, basically lead this diagnosis to a you know a whole different place. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom.
2: Exactly. Right. You are the master of your destiny. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you, both for this great conversation. I encourage everyone to to pick up the book. Who are interested in diabetes, who have family, friends, or themselves, or um, have experienced this disease, uh, to pick up the book and um, and really enjoy a whole uh, lot of wisdom and experience and scientific information as well as very touching uh, patient stories. So thank you, Dr. Abramson and um, Dr. Chopra for joining me today.
0: Thank Thank you you. for inviting us. We enjoyed it. All the best. Good luck to you. Yeah, take care.